0: Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, several years ago, genetic research was published that overturned the long-held belief that the human genome was full of junk DNA. (laughs) The body of work was called the ENCODE Project, and when that research was published, you did a program about it. That's right. Now, today, you have new information that builds on what the ENCODE Project discovered.
1: Yes, Scott. Recent research is now expanding our understanding of what is going on with that DNA that was once considered to be useless. In fact, up until the ENCODE project published its results, in 2012, 80 to 90 percent of the DNA in humans was called junk DNA.
0: (laughs) And didn't evolutionists claim that supposed fact as evidence for evolution? Yes, they did.
1: But when it was discovered that over 80% of our DNA was active, it was the explanation for why junk DNA was evidence for evolution that
0: became junk. (laughs) But wouldn't it still be good for you to explain what that supposed evidence was? Yes, I think so.
1: Basically, on the one hand, they claimed that if our DNA was designed... It was ridiculous that 90% of it was useless, but on the other hand, all that non-functional DNA potentially provided random genetic code that, with the proper mutation, could be transformed into useful genetic information producing a new protein. Well, that was totally speculative. But the idea of that much junk DNA was problematic from a design perspective. So when all that junk DNA effectively went away, (laughs) it became problematic for the evolutionists. For example, a well-known junk DNA expert at the time named Dr. Larry Moran actually said, The creationists are going to love this. This is going to make my life very
0: complicated. Wow. (laughs) So, Dr. Scripture, why did the human genome appear to have so much useless DNA? And what did the ENCODE project actually discover that demonstrated over 80% of our DNA was, in fact, functional?
1: Well, it goes back to one of the discoveries of the Human Genome Project. That was completed around 1980. One of the most surprising results of that research was that only about 2% of the DNA was actually genes. A gene being a segment of DNA that carries the information to make a protein. Now, it was known that some of the DNA was also used for the control of the expression of those genes. But still, it appeared that most of the DNA had no function. However, the ENCODE research some 30 years later found that the vast majority of the DNA was being copied into transcripts of RNA molecules. In other words, the DNA was actively being used. It
0: had some function, but for the most part, what that function was, was a mystery. So, if I understand what's going on, the DNA is making RNA, and the assumption is that the RNA has a purpose. Exactly.
1: And now, much of the purpose for that RNA is being discovered. And what scientists are finding is the statements made by the director of the ENCODE project were not just correct, but even understated. Back when the ENCODE project results came out, its director, Ewan Burney, said, we were ignorant of how ignorant we were concerning (laughs) the complexity of our DNA and how it functioned. The word he used was jungle to describe our genome. The idea being, it was like a vast ecosystem of interdependent systems composed of layers upon layers of interactions and arrangements, an incomprehensibly complex set of controls directing the function of a cell. Well, as it turns out, a jungle is certainly a complex ecosystem, but it doesn't compare with what is going on inside a cell. But one feature of ecosystems that I would compare to the function of a cell is the process of recycling.
0: Uh, Don't tell me cells use bottled water or aluminum cans. (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) But just as with plastic bottles and aluminum cans, we use
1: them for a wide variety of purposes and then break them down and use the plastic and metal over again. Well, the cell uses a material that is eminently recyclable. Do you know what that is, Scott? I think I do because you've discussed it
0: before. Is it RNA?
1: (laughs) That's it. My favorite biomolecule, RNA. RNA is the perfect recyclable material, and the cell makes gobs of it, far more than we ever realized. It makes the RNA, uses it, and then, because of the chemical nature of RNA, it breaks down very quickly and easily. And its building blocks, called nucleotides, are then used again to make new RNA molecules. And this happens over and over again inside the cell.
0: So now will you tell us what all that
1: RNA is doing? Well, yes and no. no. The most recent research is finding out what a lot of the RNA is doing but there is still a whole lot we have to learn. After all, Scott, remember, we're talking about complexity and sophistication that is virtually incomprehensible. Okay, I get it. So what are we learning? Well, I'll start with what the ENCODE project taught us, because that is the foundation for understanding what the RNA, the newly discovered kinds of RNA, is doing. And to do that, I need to give a molecular biology lesson. And there will be a quiz. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) The piece of DNA that codes the information to make a protein is called a gene. It's like a file in your computer. What happens is a protein machine makes copies of a gene in a process called transcription because it literally is just like how a scribe would transcribe, that is, copy a written document. But the copy that's made is not made of DNA. It is made of RNA. Hmm. Now, RNA is very similar to DNA with a couple of important differences. One, it is more flexible than DNA. That is, it bends and twists very easily. And what do you think the other major difference might be, Scott?
0: RNA breaks down easier?
1: Yes. The DNA in a cell is fairly stable. The cell needs those instructions intact for making the proteins it needs. So when the cell needs the DNA's instructions, it makes an RNA copy a copy that breaks down very easily and its components get used again. It's fascinating to me that a person can look at how this simple but important cycle functions in living things and conclude that it was a fortunate accident. (laughs) Such perfect balance screams design. But there is so much more than that going on. Once a gene is transcribed, it is read by a massive molecular machine called a ribosome. And using 20 different RNA molecules attached to one of the 20 different specific amino acids, the ribosome makes the protein the DNA instructions prescribed. So, we mentioned RNA being used for three different things. RNA is used as a working, recyclable copy of a gene. That kind of RNA is called messenger RNA or mRNA because it truly carries a message. A message about how to make a protein. Correct. Another use of RNA is it carries amino acids to the ribosome where this amazing machine links the amino acids into a chain forming a protein. Those RNAs are called transfer RNAs because they are transferring amino acids from solution in the cytoplasm of the cell to the ribosome for production or synthesis into a protein. And then there's the RNA that is used to form the ribosome itself. The ribosome is made of over 70 proteins and four different RNA molecules. The RNA molecules of the ribosome being called, how about this, ribosomal RNA Uh or rRNA. Wasn't that the kind of RNA you studied for your PhD? Yes, I studied the smallest of the ribosomal RNAs. I tried to determine how and what part of the RNA was essential for one of those 70 proteins in the ribosome to attach itself to the RNA so that it would work as part of that ribosome.
0: Well, I recall how much difficulty you had in doing that research. You constantly had problems with the RNA breaking down before you could use it in your experiments. Indeed. Because of how God designed RNA, it is
1: extremely sensitive to the slightest contamination. And we're talking at the molecular level. And if the RNA I was using had any break in it, my experiment would yield no results. Which relates to another phenomenon I find fascinating when it comes to evolutionists who think life could spontaneously generate from chemicals, and in particular, from RNA. The RNA world hypothesis proposes that RNA, floating around in mud puddles on the ancient Earth, made themselves the most unstable biomolecule in living systems. It's simply laughable. But that's not all they claim. The super stable, I would say supernatural, RNAs were then supposed to be stable enough to elongate themselves into huge RNA molecules and replicate themselves with great accuracy Hmm. and then arrange themselves into complexes that carried out biochemical reactions. And then finally, somehow, they changed themselves into DNA. And then, somehow, that DNA working with RNA was able to make proteins. (laughs) Ta-da! This is why spontaneous generation has mostly been abandoned, even by a large portion of evolutionists, as an explanation for how life arose on Earth. What do they propose instead? Life arose out in space and then came to Earth. That's exactly right. So, Scott, getting back to our different kinds of RNA required to make a protein. So far we have messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA. Those three types of RNA are involved in making a protein from a gene. But remember, most of the DNA is not made up of genes, and what the ENCODE project did was show that there were lots of sections of DNA that were not genes, yet they were copied into RNA. So they coined the term DNA elements to distinguish that type of DNA from genes. The acronym ENCODE, ENCODE, stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. And it was those DNA elements that the ENCODE project found were also being transcribed, not just the genes. So Scott, here's your quiz. What are the three kinds of RNA that make proteins?
0: Messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA. You pass with flying colors. (laughs) But now we have three more kinds of RNA. A
1: category of RNAs that, like tRNAs and rRNAs, do not code for a protein. They are called non-coding RNAs, and they are what a large portion of these DNA elements are transcribed into. The three, so far, newly discovered non-coding RNAs are called small-interfering
0: RNA, microRNA, and piwi interacting RNA. Dr. Scripture, before you go on, I have a question. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the microRNA and the peewee RNA? (laughs) They sure sound the same to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I agree, Scott. But they are each specifically different in function. But as
1: indicated by their names, they are all very small RNAs. And by the way, the peewee interacting RNA is not spelled P-E-E-W-E-E like peewee football. It's
0: spelled p-i-w-i. Okay, but when you say they are all very small RNAs, I don't know what to compare them to.
1: Oh, I guess that's an excellent point. So I mentioned the ribosomal RNA molecule that I worked on in my research was the smallest RNA in the ribosome. It is 120 units long. They're called nucleotides. But one of the RNAs in the ribosome is over 4,700 nucleotides long. Wow. So then the microRNAs are only 19 to 25 units long, and the peewees are 26 to 30 units long, much smaller than those previously characterized RNAs involving making proteins. And what the three newly identified non-coding RNAs have in common is they are actively involved in controlling the transcription of DNA, both genes and non-coding segments. But the way these small, interfering, micro, and peewee-interacting DNAs do their jobs is as complicated as how a ribosome makes a protein. I'd like to try and explain some of it, Scott, but I know
0: we're out of time. Yes, I guess that means everyone will have to wait till next time to hear how fearfully and wonderfully made
1: we are.
0: That's from Psalm 139, verse 14.
1: Yep. A perfect thought to finish with. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.